0: Turn in your Bibles uh, to that passage. I just want to read it out loud. Uh, Together, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, all the way through verse 34. As we conclude Matthew chapter 6 and go into Matthew 7. All of the passages in the Sermon on the Mount over which, uh, half of which we've experienced together since September, being in this series together. This is perhaps one of the most comforting. Um, As I read it, I just uh, just want you to imagine your Lord and your Messiah speaking this directly to you. All that you're going through, all that you've been through, all that you're about to go through, and here's Son of God, who says this, not just to Peter, not just to Andrew, not just to the disciples on the north shore of Israel, but to all of his followers. This is what he says in Matthew 6, verse 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on, And his righteousness. And all of these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. As Jesus is speaking, a bunch of people gathered on a little hillside. People just like you and me listening to him, going through their own bouts in life and embroiled in their own situations and circumstances. He's, he's pulling out, he's massaging this, this contrasting thought in their minds as they're listening to him. He's pitting two things against each other in their minds that would have been immediately perceptible to them. He's asking them, and he's going you know, to tease this out of them as he goes throughout the rest of these verses, but he's teasing out a question that they will come to a place where they ask themselves, and perhaps you would ask yourselves this right now, what, what are you being controlled by? What are you being controlled by? Probably being controlled by something. What is it? And there's a lot of things that a person can be controlled by, but here, at least in this Particular place and situation. He's really speaking about one thing, right? Six times he brings up anxiety. For some people, we're controlled deeply by our anxiety. Could be the most independent, strong-willed, strong people, imaginable. We're crushed and paralyzed by things that we don't know or things that are unseen. Strongest person on the planet can be powerfully overwhelmed by their circumstances and situations, even in the dark corners of their heart, we can be controlled by, by our own worry. Now, he's not speaking so much about anxiety as an emotion, which we all have, that type of fight or flight concern, you know, when my daughter runs into the street, I have, there's this emotional reaction that I have, that's not a sin, that's just a, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy dad syndrome, you know? That's not what he's speaking about, that you can't have concern, you can't have that kind of heightened level of concern that happens, that fight or flight that comes. He's speaking more about that controlling factor. It's very different, right? Very different between an emotional reaction, anxious, concerned, care for something, versus being controlled by fear and worry and anxiety. The director of uh, clinical programs at John Hopkins Mood Disorders Center, Karen Schwartz, puts it this way. A normal way of worrying is uh, when worrying does not necessarily interfere with your job or social life. It gets out of hand when we, uh, our worrying significantly interferes with your work or social activities. Normal worry, you feel that your concerns are controllable and can be dealt with at a later time. A deeper form of anxiety is when you feel that your worrying is out of control. Normal worrying is when your worries are caused uh, are causing only mild distress. It gets out of hand when you are, uh, when those worries become very distressing and pervasive. Normal worry a specific cause initiating your worrying uh, it 's there's a, a specific thing that you're worried about. A, a, a deeper level of anxiety, however, is when you begin worrying for no reason. So there's this, this big difference between the two. She goes on. Significant worrying lasts only for a brief period for normal people, but for those that are really controlled by it, it can last for excessive periods of time. And so you see this big difference between having an emotional concern for something, a heightened sense of concern, fight or flight, which is a normal thing that happens to everybody and just being controlled. Uh, it's pervasive. It's out of your power. It significantly interferes with your life. It sometimes happens for no reason and it lasts forever. The implications of what Jesus is speaking about when he speaks about anxiety, six times he, he refers to it, is when your life begins to come under the control of that thing that you're worrying about. And it's not even that thing that you're worrying about. It's your own worry and anxiety. I want you to think about that, right? Jesus, at the end of chapter 6, lobs these commands. Don't be anxious. Don't worry about things against this greater backdrop about the kingdom of God. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount since September of 2014. Who knows when we're going to come out of it? But we've been in this for a while now, and we've seen this theme, right? Uh, perhaps you've read the Sermon on the Mount, and you've been like, this is the most arbitrary bunch of, like, this, I don't know what he's talking Like, one minute he's talking about adultery, one minute he's talking about gouging out your eyes and cutting off your arm. Like, Jesus, whoa, this is crazy. He's talking about the birds of the air over here. He's talking about the uh, Beatitudes. It seems scattered, perhaps, uh, to us. At first, but as we've been going through it, we've seen this pervasive theme from beginning to end, and that is the kingdom of God. The Beatitudes were just giving us a definition of what the kingdom of God looks like and what we could expect in our own lives. As we've gone into the second half of the Sermon on the Mount, we've seen uh, pertaining to the, the Sermon on the Mount, we've seen that the kingdom, what the kingdom of God looks like when it begins to touch a community, And then, where we are now, the last third, we've seen what the kingdom of God and are looking at what the kingdom of God looks like in solitude. And so, we've really been looking at the kingdom of God and what it looks like when it dramatically affects people who desire it and want it. And so, as we're looking at anxiety, we have to ask ourselves what's the kingdom of God about? Well, we've seen that it's really simple. It's coming under the rule and the reign and the happy control of a better God than ourselves. That's really all it's been. That was the prayer that we prayed in the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The greatest desire of the believer is for God's way, for his control, for his rule, and for his reign, and our business down here is to recalibrate ours to match that. And so what are we looking at here? We're looking at two worldviews colliding with themselves. What are you controlled by? Are you more deeply influenced by the kingdom of God or are you being controlled by fear and worry and anxiety. You know, if you're like me, or you, (laughs) and you're going through like a particularly difficult period in your life and someone rolls up and they say, like Jesus, don't worry about it. It doesn't really help, does it? (laughs) You're like Chicken Little. (laughs) Chicken Little with a sky falling. You're like, I don't... no matter what anybody tells you, anything rational, any explanation about anything, it just doesn't work because of what you feel. It's such a deep weight. The sky is falling. Perhaps you're in here this morning thinking of something uh, close to that. Whatever that looks like in your life, the sky is falling on you. And it, no, it doesn't matter who, with all of their great intentions, tells you, hey, you know, don't worry about it. Don't be anxious. Almost makes it worse. worse. So we're listening to Jesus right now telling us, don't be anxious. Perhaps asking, well, why? Why, Lord? Why shouldn't I be anxious when this, 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 and this? I want to just very simply, this is a very simple passage, I think, so I'm gonna try not to butcher it. I think we can pull out three reasons from our Lord and our Messiah of why, if you're following Christ, you don't have to worry about whatever it is that you're going through. Three things from this text, starting with the first one. He gives us God's perspective. And when I say perspective, I mean the ability that God has over us to see beyond our situation and our circumstances. He knows everything. He knows what's going on. He has a perspective that we don't. Think about... Those of you who are parents who have like one, two-year-olds, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, 16-year-olds, and the battle and the conflict that you sometimes have with your children who think that they know more than you, and you're just like, you know, I guess you'll learn. <laughs> when my kid runs out into the, into the street, which she doesn't usually get far, <laughs> When she's running into the street and I run up and catch her and pull her back, and she thinks that I'm ruining her fun. You know, those moments where she's just crying because I didn't let her run out into the street. And she just, for all she knows, like, dad is just ruining her day. She just has no idea the things that I know. She has no idea that we live on a blind corner. She has no idea that this street is extremely busy, that people come down this road faster than they should, that there, are, uh, there is a busy intersection in front of us that we, uh, uh, leaving our door, go into a very tight parking lot. She, had, she doesn't know any of that stuff. She's just in her world. I want to chase a puppy. I have a bigger perspective than she does. God has a bigger perspective than we do too. And we almost expect him, at least, you know, when I read this and I see Jesus saying in a very comforting way, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, nor about your body and what you will put on. I almost expect him to follow up with, because I have all the food and clothing you'll ever want in life. But he doesn't. He says, is not life more than food? Now, he's going to get to our basic needs, but he starts right here. He starts by saying, is not life more than just food? Is not the body more than just the clothing you wear? He starts there. He starts with God's perspective. Jesus, in other words, is pointing our attention to something beyond our basic cravings. Our basic cravings matter to the Lord. Is that not why we're told to pray, give us today our daily bread? But that's not all that matters. And he starts with a wide perspective it is after all Jesus who had who said previously in Matthew 4, 4, A man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He starts with God's perspective. He moves into, and this is point two, God's sovereignty. God doesn't just see ahead of you. He doesn't just know everything that's going on. He's also powerfully in control of it. He's perfectly in control of it. Look at verse 26 of first, uh, first half. Where Jesus says, look, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your Heavenly Father feeds them. Takes the sparrows. He says, they don't worry about a thing. Well, they work hard. They do, you know, have to eat. They have to watch out for themselves but they're, by and large, pretty chill. And they're nothing. They're sparrows. In other words, Jesus is pointing our attention here to the intricate design of nature. Everything around us, everything that runs. I, like, I love those passages that Paul speaks of. Everything in the universe is being held together by the word of his power. He not only designs it, but he sustains it on a second-by-second uh, second basis. Nothing, not a single molecule, falls outside of God's good design. And yet, he doesn't just design it. He is the one who keeps it going. And so here, Jesus points us not just to the fact that God sees everything, but that God is in sovereign control over everything. And then, just in case we missed the point, he also goes off to say, hey, and just, just to remind you, you are not sovereign. Verse 27, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your span of life? It's almost like this little jab. God is in control, and you're not. That's like Christianity 101. You want to follow Christ? That's the first thing we got to figure out. There is a God, and you're not it. He takes the most simple, basic necessity, our breath, and he waves it in front of us and says, you can't even, you can't even control certain aspects about your life. Some time ago, Bree and I uh, were invited by uh, 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 her grandma uh, to Hawaii gave us some tickets to come and visit, so we went out there. It was the first time we've ever been out there. We've never been to Hawaii, so we're all just going out there. We had Abby at the time. Jude wasn't born. And we dropped, uh, remember we had this opportunity to go out on a boat, like snorkeling and stuff like that. And on this boat, I turn around, and I see on this boat in the middle of an island somewhere in the world Dave Guzik. Dave Guzik is a pastor over there at Calvary Chapel. He's on this boat with his wife, Inga. And he's like, Chris, oh my gosh, what are you doing? And he ropes me in. Uh, They were on this boat. They were about to go snooba diving. Not scuba diving, but snooba diving. So, you're not just in the water with a tank on your back, but you are tethered like a ball and chain to a very heavy thing on the water. It's very complicated. I have a problem with this because I have a problem with water, okay? There's a whole point to this story. This is the water. This is a hard, hard life. Now, I do a lot of things in the water. I have no problems with wakeboarding and surfing and all of that stuff, but it's a love hate relationship. I go onto the water with fear and trembling. Now, I would much prefer to be on top of the water. I would rather not be under the water because then it gets a lot more complicated. And so Dave Guzik, he's offering. He's like, hey, it's on me. I'm going to take you out. Let's go under the water. Have you ever been snooba diving? No, I haven't. Do you want to go snooba diving? Not really. And so he's just talking to us. And it was almost like, I mean, it was a great gift. But I was like, okay, I can't, like, turn him down. He's like... Local pastor, like, I got to do that. I got to go under the water with them. And so Bree was, like, excited. She's like, I want to see the fishes and all of that stuff. But I'm just terrified. I just have a problem with deep water, okay? So I step out on a limb, and I go down under there with them. And there's a fast, like, has anyone ever gone, uh, any, anyone do scuba diving? Anyone out here? Okay, a couple people. It's crazy. You're the bravest people I've ever known. So as we're doing it, we're getting prepped, and this instructor is like, okay, the first thing you're going to want to know is uh, uh, how to breathe underwater. I'm like, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> and as he's going through these warnings, he's like walking me through certain things, like if you breathe too fast, you know, your thing's going to clog up, you're not going to get air. Oh, great. You're just, you know, you're- <laughs> patting me on the back, You're just sending me out. And he's going through all of these warnings, don't do this, don't do that, because if you do that, this will happen. If you do that, this will happen. If you do that, this will happen. All right, have a great time. Take some pictures. And so I go down there, and I'm under the water, and all, you know, the first thing that I encounter is just like this, this crazy world, just world I've never seen, but then I'm, I'm like trying to breathe, and I'm, I, I come to this, this realization that, man, if anything wrong happens, I'm I'm not even gonna be able to pray the Lord's Prayer, man. (laughs) I'll just have to, like, speak in tongues or something. I can't even do that. (laughs) And so I just, I am made vividly aware that my life is out of my hands. I better do everything that He says, all of which I've forgotten. I better not go too deep. I better breathe like at a normal pace. Don't do anything. Don't veer too far. Don't poke a shark. Don't do any of that stuff. So all of this stuff is in my mind, and I'm just nervous. Now, all of that stuff is true outside of the water. I just don't realize it because I took it for granted. It was when I was under the water, facing something that I feared, that I realized, gosh, I can't even control this basic stuff about me. Jesus is reminding us here that the most simple need that we have, breath, our life is out of our control. Which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his span of life? god is 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 in control but he's not just he he doesn't just see everything that's happening nor is he just in control of everything that's happening but he uh, actually also cares for you third point god cares look at some of the lines that pop up in the sermon on the mount verse 26 end of 26 are you not of more value than the birds in other words god loves you Verse 32, your heavenly Father knows that you need food and clothing and all of those basic necessities. In other words, he knows you. He doesn't just love you, but he knows about you. Verse 30, will he not much more clothe you than he does the the flowers of the field? In other words, he intends to do you good. The God who knows everything, is in control of everything, also loves you, knows about you, and intends to do you good. This is the picture that we're getting from the Sermon on the Mount. You do not have a God who lives far off, kind of far removed from your life experience, who's just like, buck, buck up and just, you know, get your act together and I'll see you, you know, when I come and, and rescue the whole world. He's intimately involved, Psalm 139, intimately acquainted with your ways, has numbered your hairs, is, is more in tune with your basic needs than yourself. Isn't that why Jesus, when he tells us to pray, tells us that God knows, our Father knows what we have need of even before we ask. And the same God loves you, knows you, and intends to do you good. The point of all of this being, why don't we have to worry about our lives? The very real struggles that come our way when we do have holes in our jeans, when we are struggling with putting food on the table, when we don't know how we're gonna afford our kids' college tuition, when we run into all of that real stuff that we encounter on a normal basis, and we're told by Jesus, don't worry. Why aren't we supposed to worry? Why are we freed from worry? Because God's people don't have to worry if they belong to a God, Jesus is saying, who is sovereign over every circumstance, sees what we cannot see in every situation, and will always act with our good in mind. That's what Jesus is saying. If that's true, you don't have to worry about anything. Even if you don't see beyond tomorrow and you can't make sense of your circumstances, if we have a God who's in control of everything, can see everything, and will always act with our ultimate good in mind, we're no sweat. We'll still go through the same difficulties. We'll still encounter all of those things. But we have this umbrella of comfort. Now, take anxiety and explain to me what that is. Anxiety is all of a sudden a blatant disregard of a God who has made plain that he cares for you. It's as if Abby were to tell me, which by the way she does, I know you're my dad, and you're telling me not to touch the stove, but I'm gonna do it anyway. I know you're my dad, and you probably know some things, but I'm gonna run into the street, because it's fun. I know you're my dad, And I know that bees sting, but I want to bite it. You know, all of those things that kids do. Crazy. You're like, what are you thinking? What's going through your mind? Don't you trust me? I think sometimes we have a a proclivity to read passages like this and hear God just spouting off other things that we're not supposed to do. Don't be anxious. There's sin number 379. (laughs) Write that down and remember it. Sure, everything that God tells us not to do that we do is categorized as sin, but do we miss the heart behind it? That this is coming from a God, a Father who loves you and just doesn't want you to run out into the street, wants you to live an abundant life intimately with Him, fruitful for the kingdom, and He knows things that you don't know. He's in control of those things, and He will always act uh, in accordance with your good, ultimate good, and so He says things like, hey, just trust me. I know you don't, I know know you don't understand what's going to happen, or I just want you to trust me. No! I know you're God, and I know you probably know some things, but, you know, 34. I've kind of been around the block. (laughs) Anxiety is a blatant disregard. Where we begin to take our life into our own hands rather than turning to God. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, and Eve. On the heels of that word from uh, the serpent, was we're told, "I know that God said, but did He really mean?" First sin that ever was experienced by humanity was a blatant distrust, a disregard for God's love and care. That's anxiety. It's a big deal. That's why Jesus will later go on to say in verse 31 and 32, don't be anxious saying all of these things. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For that's what the Gentiles do. And we think of Gentiles, you know, simply put, as those who are not Jewish. And that is true. That's where the word came from. But in those days, it had a far deeper meaning. When God chose Israel, we see the, the account of Israel's story in the Old Testament. He chose them for a specific purpose, that they would be a beacon of light to the nations, that they would be set apart. He, he did not choose them based on any merit of the, uh, that they uh, required or, or uh, uh, accumulated. In fact, he told them through the prophets, I didn't choose you because you were a great nation. In fact, you're one of the smallest nations. You're insignificant. You're nothing. And you rebel against me all the time. I didn't choose you for your own sake. I, I, I chose you for the sake of my holy name, Ezekiel says. He chose them that they would learn to be God's people. They would trust him and walk with him. And through that would be a witness to the Gentile nations. That means in the Old Testament when we speak of Gentiles, we see not just non-Jewish, but we see people who by nature are those who don't know God and don't trust him. And so when Jesus calls his disciples, hey, that's how the Gentiles act. He's essentially saying, hey, something you would expect of people who don't know God are doing the things, you know, you're doing the things that people who you would expect don't know God. You've reverted back to that place. What's wrong? And then he refers to them in verse 30 as those of little faith. That's how you used to act when you didn't know me. Now you know me and you're acting from a place of deficient faith, and see, faith is that opposite, that antithesis to anxiety. If anxiety is saying, I don't trust God, or I don't trust him enough to step out and do what he says, well, faith would be the opposite. It would be, in other words, it would be saying, God, I don't know how this situation is going to work out, but I trust that you're sovereign. I trust that you see things that I don't, and that you are working everything for my good. If life is more than food and the body is more than clothing, then Jesus essentially finishes that sentence, the sequel, by saying, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. The kingdom of God, speaking about his rule and his kingship and his authority, that thing that Jesus is telling us, hey, there's something more important than food, Yes, he'll take care of your basic necessities. Yes, he'll take care of all of those things. But there's something deeper and more important that I don't want you to miss. Deeper than material things. Deeper than basic animal cravings. Deeper than food. Deeper, uh, deeper than clothing. It is the kingdom of God. And I just want you to, I just want you to grasp that. I want you to seek it first. First. When he, says, when he tells us to seek first the kingdom of God, notice he's not saying, I only want you to seek spiritual things. He's not saying, I want you to seek God and not seek food. That would not make a lot of sense, would it? He rarely says things like that. He's not, in other words, pitting following God against uh, basic necessities like food or clothing. He's not saying, only do this. You know, become a hermit, lock yourself in a cabin, starve yourself, don't get any clothes, don't take care of yourself, just read the Bible and pray until you die. He's saying, seek this thing first. In other words, it's a, it's a, a thing of priority. The same God who tells us, hey, you can ask for your daily bread, you can ask for your basic needs, is the same one who would say in this verse, I want you to seek above those things, I want your highest priority to be God's kingdom and God's righteousness. I want your greatest desire to be God's will being done and his reign being spread and his glory being known and his holiness being shown and for people to come to that and not the least of which you to experience that yourself. Super easy to take things like seeking the kingdom and make them very subjective. What does seeking the kingdom mean? Well, Jesus puts a tangible reflection on it when he follows it up by saying, and his righteousness. Seeking the kingdom simply means I want God's uh, rule and his reign and his will to be done. Righteousness is the practical outflow of that. Jesus is saying, I want your desires to be aligned with God's will and I want you to live in a way that reflects that. Jesus is, in other words, putting our lives on display here. He's saying, is your life becoming more like mine? Are you reflecting all that you know? Are you looking more like God? Are you looking more like me? Are your desires changing? Do you want more of God's holiness? Are you walking more in righteousness? Is there transformation in your life? Jesus, in other words, is more concerned than with just an altar call decision, a a mental assent to following God. He's saying, is your life looking differently? Is it changing? Is there supernatural transformation in every part of you? Is your mind being renewed? Is your body being changed? Are your habits being uh, recalibrated? Is your heart being made new? Is everything about you, your social spheres? Jesus wants everything from His taladim, His disciples, and He's putting that on the on the on the show floor right now. He's saying, "Hey, I want that to be your greatest craving, your greatest desire." everything else will work itself out. You may say how does this affect our basic needs? Well, he f- he follows that up with saying, uh, well all of these things will be added to you. Keep me first, seek the things that I am seeking after, and I'll take care of the rest. I'll take care of your basic necessities. I'll take care of the things that you need. I'll make sure that you have all the things that you need for life and godliness. And I'll watch out for you. In other words, I do care about food on the table and in your refrigerator. I do care about your bills being paid. I do care about the roof over your head. I do care about basic necessities in life. I care. A God who designed the universe cares about food on a plate. But this brings up some other questions, doesn't it? The elephant in the room. Even some of the analogies that Jesus uses don't always seem to square with life experience. Not every bird lives to see his dreams come true. (laughs) Not all birds live the way that they should and obviously not all Christians have bread on the table. Not everybody can pay their bills. Some Christians go hungry. Some Christians are homeless. Some Christians struggle. So vividly have we seen this in the last year and the first thing that I think of is Christians in the early, uh, early part and last part of, of the year in uh, Mosul in Iraq who on the pain of their faith, were ejected by terrorist groups from their homeland, ejected from their homes, lost their possessions, lost their property, were created, uh, were caused to be refugees, stripped from their homeland, their property, their houses, everything that they hold dear, separated from family, and some of them killed for their faith. People who loved Jesus and decided that they were going to follow him for the rest of their lives. Starving Christians. You have to ask yourself, what does this say to them? And not even to that extreme, but what happens in so many of our lives in this room? For those of us that struggle on a regular basis or even just once in a while, what do we say To the Lord, our Lord who we deeply trust when he tells us, hey, don't be anxious about your life. Seek first my kingdom and all of these things will be added to you when we look at our lives and say nothing has yet been added. Again, I drag our attention back to verse 25. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? See, we have been Trained by our culture whether for good or for bad to really believe that the most important things in life are what we can see feel and touch we've been trained in this life to believe that everything revolves around those particular needs the scriptures tell us here that God's people will not lack any basic needs that God deems good for them In fact, we kind of get that message all throughout the scriptures, Romans chapter 8, where we're told God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose, and then it goes on to tell us that that good purpose is to be conformed to the image of his son, that God uses even the bad things in life for our greater good, that is, to make us more like Jesus. And I know we're told by Jesus himself that God will take care of our needs, but we're also told in the scriptures to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so even in deep times of suffering, even in hardship, we're told that God means for us good things. And again, he's like that dad in a parking lot trying to get us not to run into the street. Perhaps with our limited perception, we're like, I have no idea how you mean this to be good. The street looks awesome. Not everything that we think is good for us is actually good. Not everything that we know is good and that actually is good is meant for us right now. That means when we go through difficulties and hardship, some of those times are not wasted and meaningless. Some of you are going through hard stuff right now and you're like, what is the point of all of this? God would have us say, hey, there's a, there's things that you're going through aren't a waste. On a very lighthearted note, first place that Brianna and I moved into when we were married, over six years ago, was this tiny little studio carpenteria, And it was so small that our very small furniture filled up all the room. So if you wanted to come into our house, you kind of had to just stand against the wall and just stare. It was literally that small. And we found ourselves saying, gosh, this is such a bummer. And all of a sudden, that, in, that spirit of entitlement started to creep up in my own life. You know, like... I get a little more than this? Can I get like a little more space? We literally couldn't even be in our home unless it was to sit down on a chair or sleep in bed or be in the very small kitchen. We found ourselves growing frustrated and going, isn't there more for us than this? Don't we deserve a little bit more? And that spirit of entitlement started to creep up. I didn't realize this until later, but God was using that very cramped space in our lives as so I learned something about myself. When things get hard, I generally bail. When things get crushing or paralyzing or I don't know how to deal with a certain situation, my first inclination is just to run away from it and not deal with it. And I would do that with my family. I'd do that with my friends. When conflicts arose, when arguments came up, when difficulties uh, were being faced, I was facing, I would go into another room. I would go into my car. I would leave I would just leave the situation and not deal with it. And I found, almost comically, that God kept me happily trapped in the same room, together, with each other. And we had to work through some stuff. And those ended up being some of the best times of our lives because I realized deep things about myself that I never would have realized if I just kept running away. Times when Bree and I have been financially tight And when I say tight, I mean not knowing if we're going to have enough money to pay for the rent, if there is even a slight change in the budget, if there is a single emergency, a flat tire, if we go through a little, uh, you know, a few extra diapers than we did the last month, all of a sudden we're in the red, we don't know how to... We don't know how we're going to afford certain things. There have been seasons in our life where we have been in that place asking some of those questions. Doesn't God care about us? You know what we discovered in those seasons? We had to stop going out to eat. We had to stop doing fun things that we, you know, I felt like we were entitled to. All of a sudden, we were back in that small room, stuck on a couch, having to talk. <laughs> and in those moments, We learned more about each other than we've ever learned in our lives. And the funny thing happened in our poverty, we fell more in love with each other. In fact, Brianna and I have had this conversation a couple times. It's, you know, and there have been ebbs and flows in that in our life, but it's almost always been in hard times. Isn't that usually how it works? It's often been in times of near uh, uh, impoverishedness or lack or conflict or difficulty, that we've fallen more in love with each other and gotten closer to the Lord. I have no right to look back on some of those things and say God didn't care for us. I was like a little kid in the street doubting the goodness of my heavenly Father. When we begin to let some of these things sink in, you start to renew your mind and say, you know, God knows what's going on. He's in control of everything that happens and he means for my ultimate good. You begin to let that truth sink in. You'll start to notice a little less concern about the things you have and you don't have. The Bible calls this contentment. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. He doesn't mince words, does he? <laughs> For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through the craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Notice that Paul doesn't say money is the root of all evil, nor does he say you can't be rich or wealthy or affluent. He says people with those cravings, those who love money so much that it drives them and controls them, are going to be pierced with many pangs in life. However, it's the one who is content. The one who has this, the ability to have lack or to have much, who is just able to be for another reason, who is able to survive any environment because of Christ's sustaining presence, whether you're in a moment of lack or you are lonely or you're suffering pain or persecution, there is something deeper than all of those things that's able to sustain you. Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. He goes on to say, I have been, I know what it's like to be in need. I know what it's like to have plenty. I've been rich, I've been poor, I've been hungry, I've been starving, I've been full. I have learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. In other words, the secret to contentment is him. Somehow, Paul was able to be sustained, whether he had a lot or all of it was taken away and he found himself in the basement prison in in Rome. He was able to go through any of it. His environment didn't affect him. His circumstances didn't affect him. He was like a ship with a deep rudder just pushing him along. Nothing could deter him from his joy. Why? Why does Jesus have the outlandish, uh, the outlandishness to request of his disciples, don't worry, sky's not gonna fall. Because he himself is the secret. Abby has one of those radio flyer tricycles. She loves it. Takes it in the parking lot, actually right out here, and just goes buck wild. What I love the most about that tricycle is that there's this long post that sticks out the back with a handle on it that is fastened to my hand. (laughs) And she thinks she's driving, but I am (laughs) steering. Such is the believer who knows their God. You might be moved along by difficult circumstances. Oh, they might push you. They might move you forward. But you are plowing a steady line because you know that God will never leave you or forsake you. Even when the bills aren't being paid, even when food is scarce, even when your clothes have holes in them, even when your portfolio fails, even when that deal falls through, even when you get fired, even when water in California runs out, even when talks of nuclear arms escalate, even when volcanoes erupt and the earth quakes, we plow a straight line because we are directed by a powerful God. yeah praise God and yet it's one thing to be in a place of affluence and comfort and being told that you easily say oh yeah God takes care of me I'm fine right now except when you're in the fire and you're being told don't worry you might be in that place right now asking how do I know that God won't fail me how do I know that he won't leave me high and dry how do I know that he won't abandon me? And you know that he won't abandon you because of what he's done for you already in Jesus Christ. That God, far from being that distant clockmaker who just winds up the clock and steps away, who's just distant from our sufferings and aloof to what we're going through, far from that picture that so many people have is so keenly aware to what you're going through, And takes your suffering and hardship so seriously that he stepped into your suffering as a man and took it on himself. And when he died on the cross and he took the burden of all of our sins and he rose from the dead, he wasn't just making a statement about who he was, but he was sympathizing with our very weaknesses. And when we're told that life is more than food, it's coming from the same person of whom it was said in John 1, 4, that it's in Christ that was life, and his life was the light of men. 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 through 12, this is the testimony that God gave us that very eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. That very thing that goes deeper than our basic cravings is found in this one person, this God, man, Jesus Christ. That life is kingdom language, man. And if all you do in this life is live for your food and clothes and consumerism and materialism, you'll lose an eternity. But if you lose all of your food and clothes and gain Christ you'll find at some point in your life that you've truly lost nothing. Romans chapter eight, verse 32. I love this. If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How can I trust God when I'm going through such fire? Because God gave his most prized possession to make you trust him. I want to end this morning with a single passage. I want to start from the end. In Philippians chapter four, verse nine, Paul says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the peace of God will be with you. Whenever Paul uses that little phrase, what you have heard and uh, learned and received and heard in me, he's not just speaking about any random piece of information. It's almost an idiom. He's referring to a creed. Something that's been handed down to him from someone else, probably the other apostles. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's the first thing he opens with. This is the gospel that was preached to me that I also receive, that I also give to you. Then he goes on to say that Christ was crucified according to the scriptures, so on and so forth. It's this code word for a bigger thing, The gospel. All of the stuff that we've been looking at right now, that we can trust a God who has stepped into our suffering in order to make things right. Now I want you to read what he says before that. He says in verse six, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Struggling with anxiety right now? What do you do about it? Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I wanted to read that last sentence, lest you think that whatever is excellent or whatever is commendable or lovely or pure or just or honorable or true is just anything that's happy that you can think of. Just find your happy place, Paul is telling us. No, he's not. He's not saying, hey, just think about unicorns and lattes and the peace of God will be with you. He's referring to that thing in the last part of the sentence. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me that I've been speaking about for four chapters in this book about joy. Think about the story of God and all that God has already done to you and for you. Think about his past resume for your present assurance. Think about what he has done for you and what he is going to do in you and what he is going to do after you concentrate and focus on those things and as you renew your mind with the reputation of God you will be learning over time to trust that very God when you do that your anxiety will melt away and the peace of God will permeate your heart think about the good news of Jesus Christ brothers and sisters what are you being controlled by today where does your mind go when you wake up in the morning? Where does your mind go when you go to sleep? What keeps you from sleeping? What are you enslaved to? Where does your thought life go? What are you being controlled by? If it's anxiety, Paul gives us the immediate place to take our minds. Think about what Jesus has done and what he is doing in you now and then the peace of Christ will guard your heart. Don't think about, don't think about how to get the peace of Christ. It'll come when you encounter Christ himself. Let's do that this morning as we worship. Heavenly Father, I just pray for my brothers and sisters today, many of whom perhaps are going through a lot of stuff, and I ask, God, that you, who are not unaware of the things that we're going through in this life, have not left us to our own, have not left us to ourselves would be present with us today as we begin to sing true things about you I pray that those true things that we sing would begin to make their way down into our hearts by faith that through our faith God you would begin to change our hearts that that peace that transcends our understanding would begin to guard our hearts and minds in Jesus Christ thank you that you will never leave us or forsake us that even if our fathers and mothers forsake us, the Lord will take us up. But there is truly nothing in this life that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not suffering, not the devil, not angels, not death. Some of us are maybe having a hard time believing that. I pray that you would meet us where we're at and you would make it real. As we step out in faith and declare you to be the only one worthy of our praise. Heavenly Father, we love you, God. Be worshipped and honored in this place and heal what has been sick, mend what is broken, restore the trust that has been lost, bring your prodigals home, make a name for yourself in the city of Santa Barbara, in a city that is driven by materialism and by worry. May we be a people that speak loudly city on a hill preaching a different message. We've learned how to live our lives apart from those things. We found the secret to our contentment. We can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens us. May you be our strength in our presence today. In Jesus' name.